I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I met today's guest when I was hosted on his very successful podcast and we had an amazing conversation. He has a very interesting story. He's dedicating his life to make life better for others. So I thought maybe I should invite him to be a guest here and tell you about what he does. Josh Trent is the founder of Wellness Force Media. He is the host of the Wellness Force podcast and the creator of the Breathe and Wellness program. Josh has spent 19 years as a trainer, researcher, and facilitator discovering physical and emotional intelligence required for humans to thrive in our modern world. The Wellness Force mission is to help humans heal mental, emotional, and physical health through all of what Josh has to offer, podcasts, programs, and a global community that all together believe in optimizing our potential to live life well. I like that promise a lot. I like the idea of helping each other to live life well. Josh's life is dedicated to supporting humanity. And he made it come together to help provide what he has to provide. But let's talk today about how he actually arrived here and why is it that he's so good at making a difference to the lives of people that follow his program. Josh Trent. How have you been, Josh? Is it, um, what time is it? Is it like 8 a.m.? It's 10 in the morning. 10? Yep. Okay. It's 10 All in the right. morning. You're good. I've been great. I've been really full. I, I don't like the word busy, but I've been full. Mm. And um, lots of really beautiful things to be grateful for, to practice, actually to practice gratitude for. The health of my family, the health of me, the business growth, the podcast, the breathe program, breath work itself, and just the fact that we get to be here. I know it's like a very <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> overstated phrase. It's like, oh, we're still here. I mean, truly, like, can that sometimes just be enough? You know, can it be enough that we're just still here? So I, I reflect on this. I have a reminder to meditate on death every morning. Do you? Because if I meditate on death every morning, then it means that I can live all day long until I go to sleep. That's an amazing. So if I meditate on death in the morning, then I can, I mean, because we're all, we're so temporary here. We're such a temporary life. One of the people I love most in life lost her husband actually a couple of weeks ago. And he struggled and it was a long journey. And those moments are the moments where you actually realize, oh my God, I'm alive for another day. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually not to be taken for granted. Huh? So many times, you know, people who have been normal going out with you and, you know, having coffee and laughing and everything. And then two weeks later you call and they say, ah, it's not going really well. And then a few months later, some of them leave. And it's just really strange that we take that for granted that we're alive today. It's quite interesting. 
I know. And we let our relationships fade away. We put other things in front of relationships as if relationships are somehow permanent and the thing that we're working on or the box that we're taking is somehow <laughs> not permanent. <laughs> it's utterly fascinating. I find myself falling into that mentality sometimes too. Yeah, I think so. I want to introduce you first. I In the intro, I spoke about how highly I think of you and how you're dedicating your life really, really, really to making the world a better place. So you come across a lot of people that say they do those things, but you know, not many actually really, really. I mean, I think you would do anything to make it a better place, but I don't think everyone knows how you started and you started, let me have you tell the story from the times sure. when you were completely stressed to the times where you set your own challenges, to the times where you realize that you can actually heal yourself. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think I understood the process and the power of healing when I was about 21 years old. I had struggled with weight a lot, Mo, in my life, hmm. just constant up and down. And um, to go even further back than that, I think a lot of us, myself as an example, were born to parents that do the best they can. And it's not about making our parents wrong or telling them that they did a bad job. Because I, I believe that all parents do the best they can with the level of consciousness they have. But I was born to a mom and, and she had uh, bipolar disease. And so for people that don't know, it's, it's very highs, highs and very low lows. So for a child, it's very challenging to find a, a home base, a headquarters. And my father left home when I was two months old. Oh, wow. So needless to say, I didn't have the real... Uh, standard or the parental example of what it means to be healthy or even really mo like what it means to be intelligent and i don't think intelligence is how smart you are so without the right tools without the right intelligence i'm now flash forward i'm 21 years old i'm 280 pounds wow i'm in a body i don't love or know how to love i'm in a relationship i don't want to be in and i'm working in a job that i hate i was a <laughs> automotive technician you know, uh -huh. for Mercedes-Benz. So needless to say, every all the angles in life were pointing me towards the mirror of self-awareness. And I had a gut check moment when I was drinking alcohol and I was at a party drinking and I slammed the cup down and I looked down at my belly and I felt how gross I felt in my body and everything in my life was crashing to the ground. And it was a true connection with God. And I don't mean a bearded person in the sky. Uh, <laughs> a higher intelligence that runs all things. And I got to this place where I was so just frustrated and so sad with how I felt about myself. I ran home drunk. I slammed the party cup down. I ran home drunk. And when I got home, I ran about three miles home. I was 21 at the time. And I think I typed in on the computer, like, how do I be healthy? I think that was the, the query that I typed in the computer. And I spent the next three years losing weight the wrong way, gaining weight back, then I got so frustrated, I, I literally let go of everything. I sold everything I owned. I moved to Hawaii. And on the island of Hawaii in 2005, I found the ocean. And I really felt a deep connection with the ocean and with nature herself. And that was the beginning of where I really understood what it was to tap into the power of nature, to tap to the power of healing, and to really embody that myself. And of course, that was, gosh, 25. I'm 41 now. That was almost... 20 years ago. <laughs> it's crazy to think about that, mm, how much time has passed. But that was when Mo, 2005 in Hawaii, when I really left, I burned the boats. I, I let go of everything that I thought, quote, quote, I needed. And I really moved forward to what my heart was telling me, to what my emotional intelligence was telling me. And that was when I began to know what healing truly was. And I think for our whole lives, we go through constant cycles of healing all the time. 
to encourage people to do what you did. I mean, so many people around us are in a stage where they know they're not where they want to be. They know that this is not the right life for them. They know it inside their hearts, but there is a mortgage to pay and there is commitments to take care of. And, you know, my best friend lives here. And you just literally took yourself to a new life altogether, right? You left everything behind. You said, okay, I'm going to start over. Is that something that you would tell people they need to consider? Well, I think everyone needs to consider it. But I think the choice to change is when you have a deep connection with your soul. And so I'm sure in your audience, there's people that are analytical and logical and very technology minded. But then I'm sure that there's also people that do yoga and that are into spirituality and the esoteric arts. So wherever you lie with this answer, Mo, whether you're scientific or whether you're spiritual, every single human being has to have a connection to their soul an understanding of who they are, a self-awareness of who they are, a really blueprint of why they were here on earth, why they were placed here on earth. And I think we get disconnected from that because we live in a society, as you know, with your incredible writings and your history with Google and, and just the world that you came from, people can be commoditized. People can be created into zeros and ones. And so we fall prey to that. And the next thing you know, you could be living someone else's life you could be living a life where you're with a partner that you think you should be with. You're in a city that you think you should live in. But it's only when you have those really quiet moments of stillness. My medicine is breath work. So over the past four years, five years now, I've been leading people across the world and I traveled across the world. I went to Thailand. I went to Sedona. I've trained in many different spaces. And, and I found through the art of breath, the, the silence and the real profound medicine of breath work and meditation that you can really understand who you are and you can have those messages that are coming up for you whether it's your soul telling you or whether it's your higher intelligence telling you and i'm not here to say that anyone should worship a certain god because that's not my place everyone can believe in whatever they want to believe in but that belief that we have that faith that we have in something that is what we have to listen to on a daily basis and that compass that we have inside of ourselves that has to be sharpened every single day. It has to be calibrated every single day. So the, the long answer to your short question is, we all must ponder that question. Should I or do I need to take stock of where I am in my life? What is my emotional inventory process? And how am I really showing up? Do I feel happy? A lot of the work that you do in the world is having people solve this profound equation. And that is, how do I be happy? How do I solve for happy? Well, I think it's actually really simple. Not just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. I think that you take your soul blueprint, you take the reason that you've made, the reality you've made in your connection with God, connection with self to be here, and then you combine it with your inspired action. Now that's going to be sometimes challenging, but eventually you'll always find your way to happiness. So if you take those two things, and if anyone can take those two things, yes, it may be really hard to let go of a relationship, to let go of a homestead, to let go of a career. It may be extremely challenging. It might be one of the most challenging things you've ever done. But in the moment, I think your soul, I think our soul knows that it will make us more happy if we're willing to follow the guidance. And that is what builds the most courage for any human being. This is very profound. I mean, I, I find it quite interesting, actually, why anyone would ever stay in something that is entirely not working. I mean, maybe sometimes you have to compromise a bit in, on things that are maybe in process or things that you know you can fix. Or, but if something's not working, yeah. 
why do we stick with it? I never understood that. And I mean, sometimes I tell people, at least take some action. Even if that action is sit with yourself and acknowledge that this is not what you want. Just do that, okay? Just tell yourself, this is not what I want for my life. And we'll be okay. We'll start from there, right? Maybe you don't take action today, but that acknowledgement starts to make sense. You call it the soul though, Josh. What do you mean by that? There's a lot of definitions about the soul. The way that I would define the soul is a point of consciousness. If you look at Ray Kurzweil's work, or even if you look at Alan Watts' work. So I gave very two different people there. In the middle of those people, there is a common thread of truth. And that common thread of truth is, our soul is a belief, it's a faith, it's an understanding, it's a connection to the reason that we're here and the way that we want to express ourselves here. It's made in the image of the divine. So our soul is a unique point of consciousness, right? And that consciousness is, there'll never be another Mo. There'll never be another Josh, ever, ever, ever. And that's beautiful because we're that unique point of consciousness in literally an exponential universe to where we can't even understand what that even means because the mind of man, the mind of women, the mind of anyone wants to always have a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> well, the universe doesn't work like that. Absolutely. We want the answers based on linear knowledge, but the soul doesn't care about that. You are incarnated. We incarnate as a soul into this unique meat suit called Josh, called Mo. And we live out our lives and we do the best that we possibly can to be in alignment, to be in connection with that soul. So this is a very deep, very philosophical and somewhat controversial topic. You know, what is the soul? But the soul is that unique point of consciousness and the contract we made with higher intelligence, the belief in ourselves, the love for ourselves. Native Americans have talked about this in many of their texts. And it's a lot of people go through soul loss whether it's a psychedelic break or OCD from stress or fill in the blank, there could be many things that make people actually disconnect from their soul. And this soul loss in the olden times, it could only be reconnected through shamanic arts, through someone that was in tune with nature, through someone that could bring someone's soul back. So if this is resonating with your audience, I don't know because a lot of these concepts are brand new for most people that I talk to, but please share with me, like, how can I be of most service here? Is it, do we want to go down the path of exploring oh, yes, this? Oh, yes, we do. Yes, okay, we do. good. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's go all the way. Actually, regardless of my audience, I was so interested. When you were talking right now, I have to say, in my mind, I've studied lots of religions and studied lots of spiritual, so many of them. Actually, I sometimes take time to list all of them, but I actually have not dug deep enough in the shamanic side of things. And I'm more and more inspired to actually start to look there. I mean, it's quite interesting. So keep going, don't stop. So shamanic practices. So shamanic practices, if you were to go back and you looked in history books for as long as we could actually view them, and I'm talking way before BC, like you would find the evidence that whenever we came together in tribes, whenever human beings were actually, whether we wrote on, on walls and caves or whether we pounded things into tablets, the core element of what makes us human beings is community. It's togetherness. It's being there for one another. And so we did that because we had to survive. We had to hunt together. And now we're not much different. But as Tim Ferriss said, money is the spear. So now instead of you and I, Mo, going and learning how to hunt or going and learning how to gather and supporting our communities with the way that we physically show up, 
Now we are actually trapped in the mind in this modern day society. Amazing. Where our mind has to be sharp and we have to make money with our mind, not with our bodies, really. Most people don't make money with their bodies. Of course, there are some people that do. So I had to give that as a preframe because when you look at the shamanic arts or shamanism, (laughs) I just interviewed someone on my show and she said, if you go back into the early text, shaman means I don't know. Is that true? That's the definition of shaman. It means I don't know. There's other definitions where a shaman is someone who can connect in the veil between worlds. A shaman is someone that has a deep connection with nature and that can guide and help people through the tools and, and the values of nature. But I think it's utterly fascinating if you look at one of the definitions of shamanism, it's honoring the mystery. Sometimes in life, really terrible, crazy, bad things happen, and we don't have an answer as to why. We literally create a reality that either serves us and allows our soul to love more, or we make a decision, and I'm not judging people that do this, we make a decision that something bad happened to me, and now I'm not able to love anymore. I'm going to close my heart. The reason I'm telling you this is because in the shamanic arts, there are four questions that any shaman of any old world would ask anyone who was sick. They would ask them four things. They would say, when did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? When did you stop spending time with yourself, loving yourself? And when did you stop telling stories? When did you stop sitting around a fire and connecting with community? These four things are so powerful and we are all doing them in a sideways way now. And so we have to really use technology again to connect with each other and to have technology force us to meet physically in person as well. The shamanic arts are there to teach us. All these shamanic arts where you go into someone's psyche and there's psychedelic medicines and ketamine and now we have the MAPS organization and many organizations using these psychedelic medicines. They're really scratching the surface on what shamanic arts are. But really the shamanic arts are anything that human beings have always done that we've just forgotten Mm -hmm. how to do. And that's really what the shamanic arts are teaching us now and I think forever. Singing, dancing, self-love or self-care as we call it. And what was the fourth one? Yes. And being in community. Yeah, being with others. Being in community. Yes. And there's also another one too. There's a fifth question and that is, when did you stop honoring the mystery of life? Ah, I love this. When did you think in your hubris, when did we become... God, God's self. When did we say, well, this happened because of this reason and there's no way about it. We have become so wrapped in the mind. We've become victims of intellectualization and we intellectualize everything without honoring the mystery. Listen, really terrible things happen sometimes. Really sad things happen. How do we make sense of that other than to honor the mystery? We don't always get the answers to the pain that we're, that we're experiencing. And I think that's actually part of life itself. I wonder, actually, now that you say this, if someone actually wakes up tomorrow, regardless of what's happening in their life, and they find a way to sing, dance, love themselves and love others and mix, get with others, how could they be unhappy? It's actually quite interesting. You know, psychologists and shrinks and so on, when you go to them, they'll sit you down and say, okay, let's talk about 25 years ago and keep digging and digging and digging. Yes. While sometimes, you know, like an engineer, I I ask myself and I say, look, if someone walks in with a broken hose on their car, the mechanic doesn't try to find out how the hose broke. The mechanic simply replaces the hose, right? And sometimes, of course, you know, you have to go back and understand some of those traumas to cure them fully. But sometimes I tell people like what you just said, get up, get up, sing, dance, play, have fun, laugh, be with others, take care of yourself, like be kind to yourself. And a lot of the issues go away. 
it's so interesting that we don't do this. You use the word intelligence a lot. And in, in your work, I, in general, I know that you use emotional intelligence, physical intelligence, wellness intelligence, and so on. Tell us a little bit about that. I think that intelligence has very little to do with how many books you've read or how many certificates or PhDs you have on the wall. I think that there's an arc of intelligence. And I think we go through many different arcs of intelligence in our life. And I think just like the hero's journey with Joseph Campbell, where he speaks about, you know, the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. I mean, that in itself is the most intelligent thing I have ever heard, truly. I mean, what is more intelligent than that? The things that scare us the most is actually the direction that we should be moving in. So how do I relate this to modern day intelligence, to my arc of intelligence? I think that when I've looked over the past almost 500 conversations I've had, the connecting dots, they all come down to three things. And it is, how can I be a really good gatherer? How can I gather the things that I need to become more intelligent? This is where most of us get stuck. We will listen to podcasts. We'll get the books. We'll go to the seminars. We'll get all the trainings. But the second phase of intelligence is where most people, because of a lot of different circumstances, which we can go into, lack of courage, capital T trauma, lowercase t trauma, broken hoses, <laughs> as you had mentioned, they don't apply. And this is the second phase of, of being intelligent. When you're truly intelligent, you gather, then secondly, you apply. And when you apply, that means that you try on the sweater, you see if it itches, you learn how to code, you learn how to exercise, you learn how to be with nature, you learn how to meditate, you learn how to connect with yourself, you learn how to practice conscious relating with your partner, you learn how to be a better intrapreneur or entrepreneur. And then after you do that for a while, you'll start to garner this really unique wisdom. And I think wisdom is a part of the gather and the apply because when you are wise, when we're wise, we embody. And that's the third phase of intelligence. We embody what we've gathered and what we apply. And that's the biggest piece we could ever do in this world. Those are the three phases of intelligence. It's not applicable for everyone though. I mean, this is a rhetorical question. So, <laughs> but some people will say, no, no, hold on, hold on. I mean, I'm faced with challenges in my life. And those challenges are sometimes making me unable to, you're saying I should gather intelligence, but I don't have the time for that. I have to work two jobs. I'm working really hard. My kids are demanding my time and so on and so forth. Some people would say, I can't apply what I've learned. You tell them that they need to meditate and they'll say, no, you know, it's just not working for me. How do you believe people can change that? Why do people, first of all, find themselves stuck in those spaces and how can they change them? It's a deep question. <laughs> it's a really deep question. I understand what these people are saying, but that is a construct of the mind where you don't have time. And it's really a prioritization issue. So if someone has three children or they have two jobs or all these things, you first have to realize that you are the creator of this reality. You have created these three jobs, these three kids, this situation. That's the first place you start is you become aware and you say, okay, through an emotional inventory, I'm going to identify the health, wealth, or relationships in my life that aren't really serving me. It goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, this self-awareness piece. And so from there, if you're not happy with your situation, then it requires you, life is beckoning you to shift something, to let go of something, to change something. And the only way you can do that is by first taking stock, taking inventory. 
It's so funny, Mo, because everybody has businesses and everyone maybe has stock rooms or profit and loss sheets or however you want to say it. We all take such a deep inventory of our businesses and of what we have. Why do we not take inventory of our emotional state, of our soul compass either? I think it's because it's really easy to be a victim of the mind and to say, well, as long as I tick off these 40 boxes for my work and as long as my kids are happy and they're in the good school and I have this building and we live in this apartment, as long as I can check the boxes in my psyche, well, then everything must be okay. But the soul doesn't work like that. And the deep unhappiness that I think a lot of people feel is because they don't have the courage and that's okay. I'm not here to shame anyone. And um, I actually am here to bring some compassion because I have been there multiple times in my life where I had to receive so much pain, so much discomfort for me to gather, Mo, and apply the courage for me to change and embody something differently. So first, I would say self-awareness. Second, I would say compassion for what this person is dealing with for them to say they, quote, don't have time because it's not true. You actually do have the time. I think a lot of times with life coaches, what they'll do is they'll look at someone's life and they'll say, okay, it's very easy to be like, what are the things that aren't serving? Or what are the things that are causing this person the most pain? Or what are the things that are extracting the most resources from this person? But we all have a reward. In psychology, they talk about this. There's always a payoff. There's always a payoff for the things that are causing us pain, even though we don't know it. Because our shadow or unconscious is getting some kind of reward from us white knuckling or hanging on to the things that we really don't want. And so we have to be willing to take an inventory of what am I really getting from this? What is my payoff? What is my reward from holding on to this relationship, this job, this unhealthy food, this smoking cigarettes, whatever it is? Like we're all getting a payoff. And so there's something inside of us that wants to be at peace. And so instead of us getting that peacefulness through something deleterious, can we get that peace by actually just loving ourselves and giving ourselves that peace? I guarantee you that if we took a deep emotional inventory of who we are as a human being, every single one of us, if we had like a world meditation day, which I think we do, and we were forced for an entire day to look in a mirror and see what's not working, many marriages would be shattered, many jobs would be quit. And many unhealthy foods and unhealthy practices would be completely let go of. But we're all caught in the rat race. We're all caught in a maze yeah. where we stick ourselves in the hamster wheel and we keep running and running. And, and while we're running in the wheel, we go, look how exhausted I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Look at what life is doing to me. And we earn badges from our colleagues. Yeah. Oh, I worked a 17-hour day yesterday. It's like, well, yeah. I don't want to earn a badge of beating myself up and being in exhaustion. Yeah. I think it's hard for people like you and I because we have ambition and we want to change the world. And so I constantly regulate myself, Mo. I'm like, am I pushing too hard? When do I need rest? It's always a moving target. So the answer is complex. It's very complex. I find that a big part of it is actually that we humans, we are so much better at understanding the short-term pain or, you know, fearing the short-term pain than actually collecting in our mind the aggregate long-term pain that would happen as a result of not taking action. So someone will say, look, no, no, it's too painful now. I, I just can't quit smoking. You know, it's too stressful. I don't want that. But if you add smoking over 20 years, that's much more pain 
than, you know, the pain of that you will go through in the next, you know, few weeks or months. Being in a relationship, extended relationship that's draining you for the next seven years or for the next two years is much more than the pain you will feel than if you break up and, and it takes you six months to recover. And I think people don't realize that. And that's why sometimes decisions are difficult for people to make. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, you're bringing up such core universal struggles for people. <laughs> the answers to these are are so nuanced. It's like an onion. Every single thing you've presented is an onion. You peel back one layer and there's something else to explore. So on the concept of relationships, I can speak to this for sure. I'm 41 years old. I've been through many, many, many relationships. Mm -hmm. And I have always attracted a partner that is going to show me where I'm not healed, Mm -hmm. where I'm not loving myself, where I'm not accepting myself, Mm -hmm. where I project my beliefs, my views, or what I think I need onto that other person. So it's easy to sit and say logically, linearly, that I should just break up with this person if I've gone three to six months or I've gone a year and it's not getting better. Well, that's not true, actually, because we can't always use the delta of how do I feel in the beginning versus how do I feel in the middle as a cue for whether we should stay in or leave a relationship. Relationships are based on the wisdom of the heart and the other things in life. They're based on the wisdom of the mind. But relationships are very, very challenging and beautiful. And there's so much growth that can come from being with the right woman or the right man. It's, it's very powerful. So you often speak about you call it the space between the knowing and doing. Yes. So you you sit down and you acquire knowledge. And then there is that moment where you need to now apply. And there is a space there and you describe it so nicely. So tell my listeners about this. Sure. If anyone has children and they've ever watched Inside Out or Finding Nemo or Soul or any of these movies, they all have a primary character. People, if you haven't watched Soul, you have to watch Soul, okay? I mean, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. It's one of my favorite movies. It's actually one of my top 10 movies ever I've ever seen. And it's it's made for children. Yeah, so amazing. But yeah. I think it's made for parents too, you know? I think it's made for adults too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Because I I love that movie so much because, and this is the archetype of the hero, where the hero will be faced with a decision. And we are the hero in our own lives. So we're all faced with a decision at some point. And it is, we're either going to struggle and fight in the way in which we've been operating, or we're going to pause, we're going to be more still, we're going to connect with this wisdom of the heart. And I promise I'll get back to your question, because this is all laced into your question. We have to connect to the wisdom of the heart. And we actually have to choose to let go because when we let go, there's less efforting, there's less stress, there's a complete death of the person or the way of being that you were. And there's an acceptance of, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen right now. I have no idea if I'm going to land on solid ground, if I'm going to be eaten, if I'm going to (laughs) die. There is that inflection point. And this is the, you know, Charles Eisenstein calls this the space between stories And David Data calls it the space between purposes. I feel like it's really this space between knowing and not knowing. And there's this little point where we actually have to connect our intellect with our heart's wisdom. And this is something I learned from Dr. Hawkins, from David Hawkins. That's the hardest thing ever. One of the hardest because there are two at times before we've gathered, applied, embodied, they're separate energies. They can be perceived as separate forces, but they actually are one. Just like inside of the singularity, there's duality, (laughs) but it's still the singularity. So it's all the same thing. And we're treating the head and the heart as if they're 
different. And I think, yes, they're uniquely different, but they all connect to the same thing. And that is, what is going to make you happy? What is going to make you feel like you're on purpose? What is going to make you feel or have the confidence, the knowing that you're on the right path? And so I, I always describe it to clients and on my channels as this one thing, knowing and not doing is actually the same or worse than completely not knowing at all. That's so interesting. Because if you know and you don't do, mm. if you know something and you don't do anything, it's actually worse than if you didn't know at all. Because you know whatever it is you need to do, you know whatever it is the choice you need to make. But we hide, and I've done this many times, we hide because we don't have the courage to face what we know we must do. And so we tend to practice selective ignorance where we see something and we'll kind of turn our head. I mean, a lot of this is what's happening in our world right now. Totally. You know, we have, we have totally. a, a crazy situation in, in our world where people are being divided based on pro this, anti that, Republican, Democrat, left, right. It's just, it's absolute insanity the way that people are being divided and they're being divided by a puppeteer of fear. If you're not involved with this group, then you're somehow wrong. If you're not involved with this group, then you're somehow wrong. Whatever happened to just heart-centered debate? Whatever happened to just listening to people? I had a woman that reached out to me recently, and she's, she's very, very, very progressive. Very progressive. And I don't consider myself to be very progressive. I'm more in the middle. I always try to be in the middle as much as I can. And we actually agreed to do a podcast because we want to have the art of conversation and the art of healthy debate be a thing again. <laughs> We're in a world where conscious debate or tennis match conversations where I throw something at you, you throw something at me. We are all victimized by our mind. And specifically, I think we're victimized by our amygdala. The amygdala is a hardwired piece in our brain that makes us be in fear right away. It's the yeah. part of our brain that would make us run from a tiger. So because of this amygdala, we're being divided and we don't even know it. We've all been hijacked in a way. And um, I think it's really important that we have conversations like this, that we listen to people that have different views than us and listen to, because there's always something wise in what somebody's saying. Even if it's your ability to have compassion for what they're saying, that might be coming from fear or wounding or whatever it is. The art of listening is, I think, what we all need to practice more. And I forgot your initial question, but I know it was, it was leading us in the right path. <laughs> Space between knowing and doing. So you spoke about the yes, space in between that space. There's such and, a mystery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We just don't know. We we don't know sometimes. And in our quest for always having to know, sometimes we will sabotage or sometimes we will white knuckle just so that we'll know. When actually the point was is that we're not always <laughs> supposed to know. We're supposed to sometimes just let go and not know. And that's actually where the beauty and the wisdom in life comes through to teach us a lesson or to give us something good. There's a very interesting thread. Every time we speak, you really speak to hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, really. And yet you constantly keep saying, I don't know, I'm figuring it out, I'm trying. I've had those experiences, I've made those mistakes. It's a very interesting attitude because most of our big know-it-all gurus, if you want, especially Instagram gurus, seem to know it all, seem to be like they've have figured it out already. I think it's because certainty sells. Mm. Certainty of belief, certainty of result, certainty of outcome. These things really sell. It gives people a false sense, and I mean that, a false sense of self-security. 
So somebody has a false sense of self-security because somebody else has demonstrated the result for them. And I'm not saying you shouldn't take advice from people that are living or breathing the results you want. I think that's intelligent too. But there is something to be said about sometimes the message is so much more powerful than the messenger. And the way that a messenger relays that information, a key point to know if you're working with a servant leader or if you're working with a psychotic leader is if they are humble, is if they admit that they truly don't have it all figured out and they're honest about the path they've gotten to to get the result you're paying them for. And they can articulate that path that they've walked and the results that they bring to you with honesty. I think to be honest is to be humble. Even if someone said, I'm the greatest life coach in the world, but I still don't have it all figured out. Like that's more trustable than if they said, all my clients love me and I'm the greatest coach in the world. See how there's no vulnerability there. There's no humility. There's really nothing that people can trust. And so there's I think no you, truth. There's you no can truth. be a total badass, mm -hmm. but you have to be humble. I love that. Okay, let's talk about breathing. Because I will tell you, one thing I regret every time I do a breathwork class is why didn't I do that every day of the week? Like, why do I not <laughs> do that all the time? It is life-changing. Like every time I do a breathwork class, it changes my life. And then I sometimes take weeks between them. First, tell me how you came to it. Because again, this is just a matter of years now. And you've not always done that. Maybe five, six years right. ago. Yeah. So yes, tell me yes. how you got there and how it changed your life. And what would you advise people who haven't tried it or who are not doing it enough and why? In 2014, I was dealing with such severe depression and anxiety from being in a career that I didn't want, that I was forced to take that inventory and look in the mirror. And I was doing everything I could to heal myself without actually healing myself. So I found psychedelics and I did a bunch of psychedelics and I found that, yes, there was some answers there and there was some medicine there, but it actually was a little more traumatizing in looking back than what I needed. And I kept looking for the right answers. And I met a guy named Mark Devine. And I did this retreat called the Unbeatable Mind Retreat in 2016. And I was doing breath work. And I didn't even know what breath work was. I was laying on a floor with a bunch of military operators, you know, special operators. And the next thing you know, Mo, I'm crying. And I'm like, <laughs> why am I crying right now? Like, what is this? <laughs> and it sparked this deep curiosity in me where I really wanted to understand what it was for me to be at peace and breath work was that access point for me to be at peace. Mm. And when I was at peace through this breath work, I started to follow the signs or follow the breadcrumbs, which led me out to Thailand. And I spent a month in Thailand, actually the island of Copanyan. Mm. And I did this breath work training called Soma Breath and it changed my life forever. It was super profound. The one thing I'll say about breath work is that most people think about it as if it's some kind of crazy, cathartic, extreme experience where you have to flail around on the ground. And it's just not true. Breath work can be much more peaceful and much more of a daily practice. But for me, the anxiety and depression was really what led me to the breath. And then you teach it through your own program, right? So breathe is um, a smoothie, yes. a cocktail of all of your experiences, right? Yes. So the Breathe Breath and Wellness program was created after all my travels from 2016 and going to Sedona and going to Thailand and, and traveling around the world and trying to understand what are these masters actually doing? What are these masters doing? And how can I apply this to the everyday person 
who really needs to get out of stress right now or get out of anxiety right now or get out of depression right now. And there wasn't a lot of programs out there. I actually couldn't find any that weren't, I guess you could say, delivered in woo-woo speak. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Man, don't take me there. A lot of people, they deliver programs, but they use such esoteric language that it's hard to actually get what they're saying. It's hard to actually apply what they're saying to the everyday stressors and to our everyday world. So I built the breath and wellness program to be three weeks long because we really only need about seven to 10 minutes every day. And then a few times a week, 20 minutes, and then maybe once a quarter doing a longer cathartic journey. So the three phases of breath work that are in our program that I teach, that I do myself are based on a calendar. And that calendar is every day you spend seven minutes with yourself. And in those seven minutes, you connect to whatever your body's trying to tell you, because as you know, from Bessel van der Kolk or Bruce Lipton, the body always keeps the score or the issues Mm -hmm. are in our tissues, however you want to say it. The body has these afferent and efferent nerves that come from the brainstem and then to our arterioles and to our sense in our fingers and our body. And so when we experience trauma, as we all do, because to be human is to experience trauma. Sometimes it's large, sometimes it's capital T, sometimes it's lowercase t, Mm. you know, neglect or self-confidence issues, things like that. All these things tend to come out or be exuded or be expressed in breath work, because I believe the most powerful thing that my program and that breath work does for anyone is it offers people an outlet for expression. Think about this, Mo, the opposite of expression is depression. When you're depressed, it means that you're sad, you're focusing on the past, you're not in the current moment. Well, how do we get in the current moment? We actually have to bring ourselves up to speed, (laughs) you know, like a captain on a ship. We have to kind of pull the lever and change the direction of the ship. Well, breath, because we're doing these long circular inhales. So when I breathe and when all of us breathe, we should be, we need to be aware that we are born to be nasal breathers. If you cover a nose of a child, and I did this with my son, if you cover a baby's nose at birth or throughout their childhood, their infancy, they'll start to choke. Now, why is that? Why is it when you cover hmm. a baby's nose? You did that with your son, Josh? Come on. that's that's. <laughs> but I did it. I did it because I wanted to double check the research of what I've read. So when I covered his nose, yes, he started to choke. Babies and human beings that are at rest and at peace, we all breathe through our nose. Hmm. And so you'll know if someone is a chronic mouth breather, like right now, your your mouth is closed. You're, mm-hmm. you're breathing through your nose because you're present, you're listening. But you know when someone's having trouble or when someone really needs breath work, when they can't close their mouth, when they use their mouth to breathe, when they listen or watch others and they kind of have a slack jaw, oh. that's when you know that someone needs breath work. And most people, by the way, this is another point, most people are what I call reverse breathing pattern people, where when they inhale through their nose... The belly is supposed to go out. It's supposed to go horizontal. But a lot of people that I've worked with, when they breathe in through their nose, their belly will actually go in. Interesting. And so they have reverse breathing pattern. And so they're not cueing their vagus nerve. They're not cueing their enteric nervous system. They're not using really the power of vagal toning. And as you know, the vagus nerve is is a very ancient system that's also wired in to the hippocampus and the amygdala and, and all these pieces of the ancient brain. So long story short, what brought me to the breath and all this science that I'm sharing and all this understanding that I'm sharing is that if I can be in the current moment, then whatever tools I use to get there, they also need to not hurt me. They also need to not be something that I, that I use as a crutch, right? Like some people 
They'll hire personal trainers. They'll do all these things. And that's fine. I think that's beautiful because sometimes we need like an external locus of control to remember that we have an internal one. But breath is this daily meditative self-love practice where if we can just surrender and say, all right, no matter what, I'm going to give myself seven minutes a day. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, the old school fitness stuff where it's like seven minute abs. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we all have like literally seven to 10 minutes a day to sit with ourselves. Even if it's not in the morning, Mo, it can be anytime. Obviously the morning is the best. Anytime we sit and we just give ourselves that connection, specifically with some of the techniques and the practices and the posture that I teach, it can be incredibly powerful because most people haven't done it for so long. Or, or even like you said, you'll do it. It'll feel amazing. And then two weeks later, you'll realize, oh, I haven't done that for a while. And that's okay. Because eventually the cycle of recommitment will shorten to where we'll be doing it every day. I have to comment on the idea of, oh, I don't have the time. I don't have the time is such a weird statement because I promise you people who say I don't have the time, if their favorite band came to town, they'll find four hours and go. If they, you know, yeah. if, if, if a new episode on Netflix of their favorite show shows up, they'll find the time and go. And I, I wonder, I wonder how we prioritize those things instead of actually prioritizing the things that are really, really good for us. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. Maybe the statement is, shouldn't be, I don't have the time. It should be somehow I'm not allocating the time accurately. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I have to say, I need to probably include my breath work into my scheme a lot more religiously. I have my other stuff that I really, really am now rhythmically, almost almost the same time every day. You know, I do every day and it's really incredible for me. And I think those habits totally make a massive difference. Josh, if I asked you for everyone listening to give them one thing, only one thing, one advice that helps them connect with themselves, connect with their soul, connect with the happiest part of themselves, what would that be? Choose to spend once a year, three days by yourself hmm. in a space that has zero distractions. Hmm. And in that space, whether it's a Vipassana meditation or a weekend silent retreat, just something. Maybe you go out to nature by yourself for three days. Maybe you're just in a group of other people where they teach you how to be still and be with yourself. There is so much power and so much potency of choice in that just by the act of you making a choice to be with yourself for three days. Because obviously, Mo, whenever I say that, immediately someone's going to have a laundry list pop up and they're going to say, there's no way I could take three days off by myself. Are you crazy? I have kids. I have responsibilities. <laughs> I have all these things. I get it. But by the act of you saying no, it does remind me, you know, in the matrix, when Neo put his hand up to the bullets. Mm-hmm. Because he was just done. He was done being in the matrix. He was done being a victim. He, he put up his hand. He just softly said no. And the bullets fell. That's exactly what we have to do once a year. We all have to have our hero moment once a year where we spend three days. And if it's not three days, then it's two days by ourselves. And in that space, there's some specific emotional inventory and some breathwork practices that I'd love to give your audience that can really help people in that time space. Because we have forgotten how to be alone. We've forgotten how to be with ourselves. Remember the four mm. questions, the five questions from the shaman? Mm. We've forgotten how to do that. And we become victims of our checklists and of our laptops and of our calendars. And you know what? Me too. 
I've become victims of that too. I, I fall into that trap from time to time. But we all must have some type of tool to wipe the slate clean once a year, even once a quarter if you can, right? If you can yeah. really, depending on the level of your unhappiness is the degree of how you will place these tools into your year. So if you have an extremely large level of unhappiness, I would say once a month or once a quarter. But yeah. take those two to three days by yourself. Take yeah. some emotional inventory practices that I can share. Take some breath work. Take a journal. Take some healthy food, some water. Know how to move. Know how to breathe. Know how to record your thoughts. And come back home to your family and your business with a lot more clarity and maybe the courage to make some hard decisions. And I think that's what we all need to lean into. So give us a few very, very top line of those practices. Yeah. Really simple. You take a journal and on that journal, on the left side of the page, you write 10 things that you absolutely know are making you crazy. <laughs> they're <laughs> causing you the most pain. They're causing you the most stress. Things that you, quote, hate. Things that you're really, really sad or stressed out about. On the right side of the paper, you write 10 things that you're extremely grateful for, but not like you're just going through the motions. I mean, literally, like, I'm grateful for how breakfast tastes. I'm grateful for life. I'm grateful for my spouse. I'm grateful for my job. Things that you truly are grateful for. It's funny. When I have clients do this, the things that they hate, they can list out 50 things. But try to make <laughs> exactly. somebody list <laughs> exactly. <laughs> try to make somebody list 10 things that they love or that they're truly grateful for takes them some time. Yeah. Neuroplasticity, my friend. Neuroplasticity. Yes. We train ourselves to look for, yeah. You're so right. Yeah. You're so right. So when we do this exercise, this is the culmination point. You circle the thing on the left that's causing you the most pain. And then you circle the thing on the right that you are ultimately the most grateful for. And then here's the bridge. You reach out to someone, a coach, a mentor, a friend, somebody that respects you, somebody that sees your highest self, somebody that really wants you to succeed in life. And you share with them, hey, can I share my emotional inventory process with you? I just did this solo retreat or whatever it is. You don't have to spend a bunch of money to go on a retreat. You can go out to nature for free. And you share with them, hey, Mo. So if I was sharing with you, hey, Mo, I did my inventory and I really want to share with you. And you ask them for permission. This is the key. Can I share this with you? And they say yes. If they say no, then move on. And then you tell them, you know, I found that in my life I'm dealing with a lot, but the one thing that I want to change is this. And I want to change it because I'm so grateful for this. The two things that you identified. And then you put a date on it. You put some kind of calendar, something actionable. And you say, by December 15th, before I leave for holiday, I'm actually committed to letting this thing go. And here's how I'm going to do it. Can I ask for your support on that? Wow. And that can change people's lives. I mean, just that one simple practice wow. can absolutely change someone's life forever. Wow. There are so many layers of clarity in this, so many layers of commitment. I mean, it's incredible, really, because... First of all, you have the awareness, you list them down. Suddenly you see them, you rank them, you know which one matters to you most. And that all of that awareness matters so much. And then yeah. you're saying, I'm not only going to take action, I'm not only going to take charge, I'm gonna have someone support me. I remember that idea of the community again, someone with me in that cycle, someone guiding me, someone holding my hand, someone tapping me on the shoulder when I'm not alert and tapping me on the back when I get it done. I think that's an amazing exercise. I mean, honestly, Josh, you're amazing. I truly and honestly <laughs> admire you and Thank in you. everything that you do, the way that you do it, the personal experience and the stories that you had to go through to be where you are, 
yeah, I can't thank you enough. I really can't for being with us and for sharing this with our listeners. You're amazing. Thank you, Mo. It feels good to receive that from you. It feels good to receive that from you. You're the man, honestly. Because a lot of us, we, <laughs> we, we tend to shy away compliments. And there's a difference between being egoic and being humble. Like humbly, I say, feels good to receive that from you. Thank you. Because, you know, I've done a lot of work. And so have you and so have many of us to get here. You have. And I think it shows everyone. You should listen to Wellness Force, by the way, if you haven't. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And look up all of Josh's work. I mean, he truly has the purity of intentions to make things better. And I think the experience for having been there himself. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation as much as I have every time I spend time with Josh. It's just such a treat. And I'm really, really grateful I was given this opportunity today. If you have enjoyed this conversation, please share it with others. Please tell others about it. Spread the word because together we can actually make a lot, many, many more people happier. We can make many more people reflect and find their inner self. What can I say? Uh, once again, I'm very grateful that you give me the opportunity to catch up with old friends and to have those conversations with some of the wisest people in the world. You truly, truly are giving me one of my biggest joys in life to record slow-mo. Oh, and before I go, I wanted to tell you about getting your free guide from Josh. So basically go to wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. This is a guide for the six practices that you can do to really, really get better and get more in touch with yourself. It's available for you for free, wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. I'll keep a, a link to it in the show notes as well. With that, I will tell you to remember that those reflections, those things that Josh was talking about, the time alone, the notes, the awareness, all of those are so important for your wellness. They are as important as finding a little bit of time to slow down. The whole idea of what I'm trying to do here is to remind you that regardless of how busy your life is, there's always a tiny bit of time for you to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.